Shai Bassarelli and Jimmy Chin have explored the mentality of risk takers over several films. They won an Oscar for Free Solo. Their latest is called Wildlife. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. The new documentary Wildlife tells the love story of two people who moved from the clothing business into conservation. Doug Tompkins created the brand North Face. Christine Tompkins was CEO of Patagonia. They met in midlife when they'd each reached career peaks and were ready for the next chapter. They joined forces on a project to buy over 10 million acres of wilderness in Chile and Argentina and turn the land into national parks. While pursuing that dream, Doug Tompkins died in 2015. In the film, Chris explains her state of mind. I lost the love of my life. I was seriously wounded on my knees. I get a note from a friend who says, you have to make a choice and you have to make it right now. You can live off this story. You can tell everybody about this life you had and mourn Doug for the rest of your life. Or you can go to work and don't stop. What are you gonna do? And that was a choice. Wildlife follows Chris as she pushes forward on what became the largest national park donation in history. The film brings us into their circle that includes Yvonne Chenard, the founder of Patagonia, who hired Chris. Yvonne and Doug started out as vagabond climbers before they became entrepreneurs. This is apt subject matter for Chai Vassarelli and Jimmy Chin. When they met, they each had rising careers. Chai had made several films in Africa, including Yusu Endur, I Bring What I Love. Jimmy was a prominent adventure photographer. As a team, they made Free Solo, about the climber Alex Hanold, as he tries to ascend the mountain face of El Capitan without ropes. Their next film was The Rescue, about the divers who saved a group of boys in Thailand trapped in a flooded cave. I interviewed Chai and Jimmy in Copenhagen at the CPH Docs Festival in front of a live audience. We talk about wildlife and what it means to document high-risk situations. Before we get to those topics, the conversation begins with their first collaboration, Meru. That film chronicles a harrowing expedition that Jimmy undertook with two friends, his mentor Conrad Anker and Renan Ozturk. The trio were climbing Mount Meru in the Himalayas. It's a peak that requires climbers to master several disciplines, high altitude climbing, ice climbing, snow climbing, and big wall climbing, all in the same trip. No one had achieved it in over 25 expeditions. Jimmy filmed their trip, but was stuck on how to shape its narrative until he met Chai. I asked them to describe the making of Meru. We start with Jimmy. We went there in 2008 and failed spectacularly about 100 meters from the summit after 19 days on the route. And then, uh, and then we went back in 2011 and uh, tried it again uh, successfully. But the film is really about friendship and loyalty and mentorship and these ideas that 
are a part of the climbing world that I didn't feel like very many people knew about or understood, and I wanted to bring that those ideas uh, to a general audience. And Chai, you know, significantly brought so much to the film and uh, made it into what it is today. So, Chai, when you finally responded to Jimmy and uh, watched uh, his cut, wh what did you see in it? I mean, it was astonishing because it, this had been like, we had experienced the DSLR revolution where for the first time we had good enough cameras that were small. And so the footage is basically Jimmy filming his two friend, best friends and Renan filming his, like they're all just filming each other. And they are on this outrageous climb where, you know, sleeping on a port ledge which is like a cot attached to a mountain that's, you know, this wide. Um, and just seeing the world through Jimmy's lens was astonishing and it was inspiring and just understanding this very deep connection to the outside world and also kind of the first time I had access as a viewer to these incredibly remote places in such a visceral way. And then, you know, there's also like the crazy factor. Like this, it seems entirely insane when you're looking at the dailies that, you know, you guys are up there, you know, for that long. And, you know, it became a question of, Jimmy and I began kind of falling in love in this process. And it was twofold. One, the, the main thing for me was like, I love Jimmy and was falling in love and I wanted to help him tell the absolute best version of his story. And that's what motivated me. And it was kind of like a muscle that I had developed over, you know, four quite obscure African films about Africa um, over, you know, a 10-year career. And it was, it was, it was exciting. And just the question was, would these mountain climbers, because in climbing, there's, everything is understated. We call it sandbagging. I had never been on a climb before. I never will really go on a climb. And so I was completely on the outside. But when you asked, you know, Jimmy, like, was it hard? Uh, it's okay. You know, it's very, very understated. So the question was whether these three mountain climbers would show up emotionally. And I think there was a magic in the idea that Jimmy and I were kind of, were becoming, like, permanently attached, like, probably getting married, having a child, that all, the, like, Conrad and Renan really showed up. You know, like, I remember... Conrad like sat for a seven-hour interview. He cried. He it, it all came, and so then we knew that you had you had it. You had the movie because they were able to reflect and speak in a way that you know civilians could understand. I mean, I think this has become a notable uh, characteristic of of your last several films: Free Solo, The Rescue, Wildlife, where uh, you're telling the stories of. People who might people who belong to uh, a specific subculture, uh, where they can speak in a shorthand to each other, but have a stoicism uh, to them that isn't, you know, turning on a faucet of emotion. Um, uh, Jimmy, I wonder if you can describe from your perspective, you know, what. Chai was able to draw out in that process that um, that might not have been there in the in the your original cut. Sure, I mean I think Meru was the perfect case or 
film for us to work on uh, because I think through that process we quickly discovered you know the benefits of having two very different people with very different perspectives work on a film. Uh, Which I assume just goes totally smooth. <laughs> well, it's best when we can work out our issues on stage with yes. a really smart moderator. Yeah, They're trying to figure soon. out what we're going to do with the kids on any particular day. It's very smooth. <laughs> um, but, uh, I mean, the classic case, as I mentioned, is, is Meru, because this is a film that was deeply personal for me, that I was very, very close to, that I had particular insights into because I experienced it myself. And uh, that brings, you know, a certain level of understanding of the material. And, you know, I always knew what I wanted people to feel. And, and I, but I, I wasn't sure how to achieve it. But I had that clear idea of how I wanted people to feel um, and what I wanted people to get out of it. And then Chai, who, like she mentioned, is not an alpine climber or climate altitude, but she brings a objectivity to the material that I don't have. And I think that's played out in all of our films. You know, Chai's mind for narrative structure and to be able to kind of, um, especially in the edit, go at it with a scalpel in a way that I can't, especially in, in, you know, like in Free Solo, where I remember how many days it took to shoot a particular shot and how difficult it was and how much time it took to set up and I'm just deeply married to a shot and Chai will just look at it and be like, it's gone. <laughs> it doesn't move the narrative forward. And I'm like, no, but we, we that sunrise shot is like one of our best shots. And she's just like, um, and we, we've learned to really trust each other's instincts in that way where, you know, also in the rescue, I think the, the divers felt like maybe we understood them a bit better because we work with people like Alex and Conrad and Renan, and they were able to open it up a bit more. Um, and I think having a little bit of credibility as a professional athlete, you know, allowed them to kind of feel like I might understand them a bit more. Um, and that gave us and Chai access to kind of go in there and really mine these guys um, and their emotions when they're like the least emotional guys you've ever met. In wildlife, we enter another insular circle of friends. I asked Jimmy how he first got to know Doug and Chris Tompkins. Let's see, I was introduced to uh, Chris and Doug Tompkins through my good friend Rick Ridgway, who was, uh, you know, he was kind of a legendary explorer himself. He was the first American to climb K2 without supplemental oxygen, 1978. He was on the cover of National Geographic. He's written nine books. He invited me on my first National Geographic expedition. And he was really good friends with Yvonne Chouinard, who is the founder of Patagonia, but was also in my circles known as uh, an incredible climber who'd done first ascents on El Capitan and on mountain ranges all around the world. So I knew of him first as a climber, an ice climber, 
Um, and then second, as an entrepreneur. And that friend group was also friends with Doug Tompkins and Chris Tompkins. Doug uh, had founded the North Face and later on Esprit. And uh, Chris Tompkins was uh, the founding CEO of Patagonia. And this friend group, who is, they're incredibly private, but they had kind of, you know, defined an era and a lifestyle that I had kind of aspired to when I was growing up as a climber and skier. They were kind of the original climbing bums and ski bums. They kind of had this ethos of, you know, committing deeply to this craft of living in the mountains, um, being surfers and living in the outdoors. Uh, so they were icons to me. And I learned a bit more about their story uh, working on another film called 180 South and was just really, really moved by their life story, but also what they represented and also what they had chosen to do with their lives. So Chai, this is a multi-layered film, is a love story. There's also you know, the story of what it takes to transfer this land that, uh, that Doug and Chris Tompkins uh, uh, bought and accumulated and, and fulfilled this mission that, uh, that Doug Tompkins had to turn it over to uh, the countries of, of Chile and Argentina for uh, national parks. When we spoke at the film's international premiere uh, on Sunday night, you talked about this as being an incredibly daunting project to take on because you're making a film about mentors and friends of, uh, of, of Jimmy. Um, and uh, these are people who have a history of building companies and being in charge of, uh, of things and now you're trying to tell their story. I mean, can you talk about what some of the challenges were at the outset to taking on this project? Um, yes, so Tom, I, like basically our process is I don't wanna make a film, period. I never wanna make a film and I dread making a film and I dread making a film and you keep on saying no, no, no until you have to say yes until it's so meaningful that you absolutely have to say yes. So this was very much the story with this film where it was like the worst idea. I was like, we're not gonna make a film about your mentors. I'm not gonna walk into that snake pit of like that trap where like I'd either make Jimmy mad, I'd make them mad, I'd hurt our, our reputations as being, you know, we're pretty like, I don't wanna say, like objective filmmakers, even though like films aren't objective, but you know what I mean, we approach it warts and all. Um, and then Doug died. And it was, it, there Which was. was in 2015, yeah, to put it in perspective. It was in 2015, and, you know, and also just to give you more perspective, like Rick spoke at our wedding. Like that, that's Rick Ridgway, who's in the film, um, spoke at our wedding, like it was very close. And then Doug died, and I began to hear kind of the story of Chris, who's Christine Tompkins, who's a, who, who as a widow, was faced with a choice. Like she was either kind of going to die with Doug because that was the love of her life, or you know find the strength to pick up, pick it up. And I was really moved by this story of second chances and you know reenact like reinventing yourself. And Chris and Doug were a really good example of that because 
you know, Doug, at the height of his like commercial powers when he had Esprit, which is a major global um, brand, decided to sell his stake and move to Chile because he wanted to find more meaning in his life. Um, and that's when he, that he hatched this dream of creating these national parks. And Chris, who'd been running you know, Patagonia, which arguably is like one of the single most successful clothing brands out there um, since she was in her early 20s, and she was the first CEO, CEO built it to be a $20, $200 million company at the time, which is like 90s, which was very, very good. It's now $3 billion. Um, realized that she too wasn't finished and found you know, love, like the love of her life in her late 40s and found this purpose. So it just, you know, I think that we're faced, like climate change is the existential like question and crisis of our time. I look at our kids and see the fear in our nine-year-old's eyes and I was like, this is a film that we probably would inspire people. And, you know, I think it was, it was really nice to make a film where there's a woman at the center of it. Um, and I feel like that's kind of, like she was the woman behind Yvonne Schnard of Patagonia. She was the woman behind Doug, Doug um, as they're making these parks, but then ultimately she finds her voice and affects this monumental change. Like, you know, they ended up, like as of today, they conserve 17 million acres. Oh, really? I thought they had in the new park now. Yeah, that's oh, 15 million acres. Can't keep track of the acres. Um, so yeah, so yes, I dreaded every single minute dreaded showing them, and they were very, this is a generation, they're older than we are. Yvonne is 84, Chris is 78, and they're used to being in charge. You know, they're a privately owned company, you know, they're used to getting their way, they're very, very thoughtful and intentional about their lives, and so here we come, you know, asking for every single, I don't know, like Doug and Chris took tons of photographs, so, so there were a lot of intimate photographs in that collection. You know, there, were, there was a lot of personal stuff in the diaries, 24 years of diaries, um, which were pages and pages, and so it was tricky. It was tricky, but I think, again, it was always this idea that if you could give yourself over to telling the story the right way, it could really inspire people. You described uh, the challenge that you faced going into this project of, like, you know, how do you pull the, their story out of them in a way that you want to tell it that's not necessarily, you know, a, being their stenographer. Um, can you, you know, give an example of, of something along the, the way where, you know, you had to massage that to get something you wanted? I've got a really good example. So I, it's just like kind of in our DNA or our, like our ethos of how we make films is like I'm not, I'm not willing to stop. Like in Jimmy's kind of a similar way. It's like why are we making this film unless we give everything to it and try our hardest to make it the best it possibly can be, stretch the material until it's, you know, it's limit. And I don't know, coming off of Free Solo and the Rescue, I was like we will clearly get Yvonne's wife to speak on the, in the film. And Jimmy kept on being like, you'll never get Yvonne's wife to speak in the film. She doesn't go on camera. She's not, like, she's incredibly shy. She appears in the film. You don't know it's her. And, you know, there are concerns. Like, there were kidnapping concerns. There were, like, they had, she had concerns um, about being recognized. And, you know, to add to that, Rick Ridgway's wife, Jennifer Ridgway, passed. And she was kind of our link to access with Melinda and you needed these women's voices around Chris because it couldn't just be the dudes talking about her. Um, so I just, in like total me fashion, was determined. I never thought I would lose this battle 
I was like, it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. She appears in the film now, but it's only her voice. I mean, I, I couldn't, I still can't get over the fact that I didn't win, you know? <laughs> like, and it was critical. So, so we found a middle ground. It does seem like she's died, but she's still well alive. Um, and she did give, sit for the interview and it was like very much like, I don't know, last few weeks of editing that we got it. Um, so it was that. I mean, well, I would say as a viewer that I wasn't even conscious of her not being on screen because she's a presence. I mean, you know, she has some important moments where she's contributing a perspective that's a unique, important perspective. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, just to put it into context, uh, Chai's relentlessness, uh, for the rescue, we needed the footage of the Thai Navy SEALs in the cave doing the rescue. We asked them probably 50 times, and they said no 50 times. And then Chai flew to Thailand. This is during COVID. As soon as they opened up Thailand for travel, uh, Chai spent a week in quarantine. 10 days. Oh, yeah, 10 days in quarantine. Dry quarantine. They don't tell you that until you're there. <laughs> it was on the beach, but anyway. You couldn't leave the hotel room. What are you talking about? <laughs> I was friends with the snails. <laughs> so she, she flies to Thailand, spends 10 days in a dry quarantine, and uh, goes and convinces the wife of the admiral of the Thai Navy SEALs to give us this footage, which they had refused over the course of a, like a year and a half. And then they flew with a, a military attache carrying a briefcase with the drives to New York for us to edit. Um, so she, she convinced the Thai Navy SEAL, admir the admiral of the Thai Navy SEALs to give us this classified footage and she couldn't get Melinda to get on camera, so. <laughs> but she tried. Chai, if we scroll back to before you met Jimmy, there probably wouldn't be much in the trajectory of your career that would suggest you were gonna go on to uh, direct th th these kinds of adventure films. Um, uh, I wonder, you know, in these past 10 years or so of being in that world, you know, what you've observed of it or what, what the kind of fulfillment that you found in telling these stories. Well, again, it's like we're so different. So for, for me, the great, it's been very fulfilling to have this wonderful material with which you can access this kind of elusive human potential, right? And again, like warts and all, like, you know, in Free Solo, it's about, you know, Alex wanted to have this, had this audacious dream to climb El Capitan without a rope. But what was scarier for him was to talk to other people. And so then suddenly, like in the film, like he ends up falling in love and actually evolving emotionally, which has very little to do with his climb itself. And so, you know, so they're adventure films, but I think they're just also like lenses to look at this, this fascinating edge that is pretty like hopeful too, in that most of these stories we tell are about people who dare to dream and with determination and grit and a little help from their friends, you know, fulfill, like, you know, make their dream, succeed and achieve their dreams. But, you know, just to like really pull back the curtain a bit about this is like, still Jimmy's like, you don't understand. 
Like I have had this 10 year, 12 year like ex examination and living with these guys, you know, adopting Alex Honnold to be like my third child, you know, and still like when we're making a film like this, he's like, you just don't understand. And so I'm always like, well then tell me, but I think I do understand now. As an outsider to this world, <laughs> I, you know, the thing that strikes me most prominently is the risk factor, um, you know, all athleticism uh, carries risks of injury, but the you know the risk factor here, as you've documented in your films, uh, you know, people perish. You've had uh, near-death experiences, Jimmy. Um, uh, it's at a different level here than in uh, in most uh, athletics, and you know today, as we see you know, human traffic jams on Mount Everest uh, during climbing season, uh, the I'm struck by the, the, the tension between the fact that this is maybe now more, this lifestyle is more democratized, more people uh, can do it, um, but uh, it, 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 there's something unsettling about uh, watching more uh, people do it. Um, and I wonder if you can, can you know, reflect on, on those tensions um, from the inside. Well, certainly there's a difference between people who can or have the experience to assess risk for themselves and then the people who are being guided who might not be able to assess the risk for themselves accurately. Uh, so much of what we do is based on risk assessment and you build that capacity to assess risk over time and experience uh, and it takes a huge amount of commitment and at the very upper tiers of any of these sports where you know, you're riding right on the edge and the stakes are extraordinarily high, uh, your capacity to assess risk has to be very, very accurate. Uh, and there are miscalculations. Um, but uh, when it's been popularized and, become, and it's become much more commercial, you know, the weight of that assessment lands on the guide services, on something like Mount Everest. And Mount Everest is really an anomaly, although there are actually much more guided trips on 8,000 meter peaks than there were 10 years ago, so that's changed a bit. But you know, Mount Everest, for a long time, and still to a degree, is this mountain where all of these people who don't have a lot of experience climbing and the mountains and don't have the ability to assess risk uh, are leaning entirely on their guides. And so a lot of that responsibility lands on these guide services. Uh, now, the level of guide, guiding um, abilities also varies. So uh, there's a big mixture of what's happening on these mountains. Um, I can't say, you know, I, I can't make major generalizations just because every guide service is so different down to the individual guides, but uh, it's certainly become, you know, more of an issue on Everest because there is actually traffic jams and it's causing people to die on the mountains. Um, but I also think for myself, who am I to say, oh, you can't have that dream of climbing Mount Everest, you know, because it's such a personal decision. But, you know, I do feel like if you do have that dream, you know, you need to pay some dues so that you can 
have some sort of uh, capacity to know what's safe and not safe. But yeah, I mean, it's a tricky question. Uh, r risk is obviously a very, you know, w what level of risk you're willing to accept is very, very personal. Chai is an insider, outsider to this world. How do you look at risk? There's an argument that could be made that between Meru, Free Solo, the rescue, and even wildlife, I've been trying to negotiate my feelings about risk and trying to understand, um, trying to understand as best I can because we've committed to this life together. We have two wonderful kids. And I have to say, you know, it was, it was Rob Moss who once pointed out to me after seeing Meru, you, he said, like, Chai, you don't really believe Jimmy's ever going to die. And I had, honestly, like, I, I can't believe that, right? Like, I can't because I can't, I can't, like, I can't give him that pressure and I can't, I know what I signed up for. But that's, it's hard. It's really, really hard. And so my, we recently had um, a very close friend who was a participant in one of our films die. And it was, you know, she was perfect. You know, she was a captain of the team. Like, she, I would trust her any day with my kids. And... I don't know, I'm having like an active, um, an active, I don't know, wrestling match inside me and, and we've been talking about these questions a lot because I think you are more likely to die above 8,000 meters than you are under 8,000 meters. You know, like, I, like this, this is a self, this is a risky endeavor. And even if you're the best, but I, I'm not one to say like you can't because these are, this is why certain individuals, this is what they live for. And we've spent this time looking at that question. Um, so yes, I'm, I'm different. Perhaps the way to describe it is a risk reward equation. And for some of us, we mainly see the risk. And if, you know, for those of us who have never experienced the reward, it can feel more abstract perhaps than, than the people who have experienced the rewards. Yeah, I, that's a good way to put it. I mean, I think one of my favorite quotes from a good friend and mentor, John Krakauer, said to me early in my career, there are two great risks in life, risking too much and risking too little. And, you know, I think we all examine uh, what it means to risk too much. Um, and there's a lot of fear-based decision-making in life. Uh, but also, you know, I guess the suggestion is that you have to look at what's, what you're risking if you don't take risks. Like, what is, what is, you know, what do you lose? What is the, you know, opportunity cost of not taking risks in life? And, you know, we, we make those calculations all the time, whether you're an artist or a musician or scientist, um, or in any field, uh, but people take risks for, to, to progress. Um, and whether that's in their craft or personally, uh, but it, it's, it's something that I think people who do what I do examine daily, you know, and it's, you have to be so deeply intentional about what you're doing every day when the stakes are that high and part of that is the draw of living a life that way because 
you are examining the questions that most people tr avoid examining. Nobody wants to believe in their own mortality, but when you look at your mortality every single day, you start to make certain types of choices, which I, I think for me is, is a really important perspective. I want to thank Chai Vassarelli and Jimmy Chin for speaking with me, and thanks to CPH Docs for hosting our conversation. Wildlife is opening in theaters and will start streaming on May 25th. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. I hope you'll follow our Instagram at Pure Nonfiction. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. <laughs>